too intense, too loud, too brash, too confident, too outspoken, too joyful, too self-assured. Both of my guests today have been told throughout their lifetimes that they are just too much. I'm fascinated how feelings of not enoughness can manifest in so many ways, even as feelings of too muchness. Even if you've never been told you're too much, and that's not your personal experience, I still urge you to stick around for today's conversation because there is so much thought-provoking stuff that comes up, you'll be glad you did. So my guests today are Karen Goldfinger-Baker, host of the Trauma Hiders podcast and coach to pro athletes and executives in organizations, including Apple, Amazon, Disney, Facebook. You will also meet Dr. Sarah Madigan, author and clinical psychologist, who by way of her own description is a, wait for it, joy-seeking, sweary, woo-woo, hippie doctor and transformational coach. (laughs) You are in for a treat. Before we dive in, hello, welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, ex-investment banker turned executive coach. This is a show for high achievers in fast-paced industries and to the outside world, you have made it. You've got the titles, the status, the shiny things, but secretly you're wondering how long you can sustain this pace. Maybe you're bored or burnt out, or you're constantly wondering, is this all there is? And no matter how much you achieve, it never feels enough. I feel you because I've been there too. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. A trigger warning before we start today's episode. There are mentions of childhood sexual abuse and the death of a small baby. There's also some extra spicy language, so headphones recommended. We kick off with Sarah talking about her too muchness and where those beliefs came from. Ready? Let's dive in. I am a very enthusiastic person. My spirit is very excitable. I'm very enthusiastic. It's one of the things that my very close friends love about me the most, right? They call it unadulterated enthusiasm. Now, for decades, I was deeply ashamed of my too muchness and would hide it, um, would on a daily basis feel ashamed of it. And it was actually an exercise that a previous mentor of mine set me where you had to reach out, you know, and your listeners might enjoy this exercise. I had to reach out to three people, one person that it was easy to reach out to, one person that it was hard to reach out to, a neutral person, and ask them about what do you think are my gifts, right? What are my unique gifts? And it was such an interesting exercise in receiving um, because I wrote, I wrote down their responses on my whiteboard, but I couldn't receive them at first. I thought they just felt like they were just put on the spot. They felt like they had to say these things. But then I kept revisiting the things that people had said about me. Um, and then I had the realization of actually like, this is between me and me. If I can accept my unadulterated enthusiasm as my gift and my magic and allow that, then it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks anyway, right? I think my dad um, is a shy, um, reserved man. He's like one of my favorite humans in the world, Mandy. I adore him. He's very funny. He loves jokes. If you meet him and tell him a joke, you've won him over like forever. He just like loves jokes. 
But I think that he found my spirit and my enthusiasm too much. Like it irritated him. So I did have an experience of just me being myself and that really irritating the person that I wanted the approval from the most, right? So that's really, really deep. We're very, very close now. And I understand now that that was a, you know, between him and him. And that was his, that was his pain and his shame that he was projecting onto me, but that that's deep. And then at the same time, my mom is such a beautiful person and she, but she's constantly helping others and looking after others. And I would say perhaps trying to prove that she's enough, right? She finds it hard to just be. I find it hard to just be, right? I just saw your, <laughs> like, Mandy, get out of my head. I saw your um, post on Instagram about, like, flipping, taking your phone to the toilet just to optimise, right? Just to, like, you know, and often when I'm in nature, I feel like Mother Earth is literally saying, Sarah, just be. Like, that's challenging for me. And it triggers me when I see my mum... <laughs> You know, the way that we criticise the people we love the most because they, they mirror back to us what, what, where we're at. I feel so much love for people, Mandy. I feel so much freaking love for people. But I wouldn't express that because, yeah, I feared that it would be annoying for people, right? Um, and because that wasn't modelled to me, but it, it was what my spirit always felt in the most alignment doing, Right? So my community is very, very um, centered around love, right? And I express my love for my clients a lot. And that feels really in alignment for me. Um, my, um, you know, as a woman, I would not um, feel comfortable being too sexy. That has ch changed a lot. I really give myself permission to feel sexy now. Um, but that's another example of how I, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't allow that too muchness, right? I met Karen about seven years ago in a coaching mastermind I belonged to. Her big heart was the first thing that I noticed about her. And then there was her bold directness, spiced up with a lot of F-bombs, and her larger-than-life confidence. I was immediately drawn to her. Over the years... As Karen went into some deep inner work, I witnessed her stepping into a new level of power as she claimed her wholeness. Let's go back, though, to where Karen first started experiencing the belief of too muchness. I have often thought that the direct or saying the thing um, came from a place of just that, like third child, born three and three years, right? So no arms for me, right? I had to figure it out. I said to my parents when I was three years old, we were all sick. My sister had strep, my brother had strep, a strep infection, and I did too. And I could see that my mom had my sister, my dad was holding my brother. And I was like, okay, I've got my stuffed animals, but and my mom said, what can we do for you? And at three, I, I can totally picture myself standing in the doorway of my room, holding the door handle with the door sort of ajar. And I said, I don't need you to her. 
I don't need you to my dad. And I'll let you know when I do. And I slam my door. And that direct, right? Like that was really what was on my mind. Because if I needed them, I can't have them anyway. And what I really needed was like quiet and to get out of the chaos. And to be sick in my own bed, I suppose, just to be quiet, which was really my ultimate goal. And I didn't, I didn't know that certainly at three, but I think that the, what needs to be said is said was like from tween years on was a strong quest for truth. I was living a life of internal untruths. Well, no, I suppose internally I knew what was happening. It was the external that did not feel true to me. So as much as I could, I was going to show up in truth without ever letting anybody see what was inside of me. So that, you know, here I was, I was sexually abused starting at the age of 10 by my father's father and also threatened that if I shared that, my family would be murdered. And so I couldn't share that, right? I could I, I wouldn't even have had the words. And also there was no internet. There were only <laughs> the world book with its gilded pages. And you would only get one world book alphabet letter per month, I think, unless you bought the whole set. So I wouldn't even even had the words to look up like what the fuck was happening to me. So I wouldn't have had the words like what this is. I wouldn't have even known what to look up other than I feel disgusting broken, filthy, and angry as hell. So I made one choice and that was, I'm going to navigate my life and no one is going to know what happened to me. So I was very aware of leading a double life, even at 10. I was aware that there was this internal me and then there was the world, then there was the me I wanted to show the world. So the me who I let you see was showing up very direct, very truthful, very together, competent, smart, funny, connected, community builder. Like I did all that really, really well. And the persona I developed was like, I'm going to cut through all the bullshit because inside of me, it's all bullshit. Not fake, but it's, there's just, it's just chaos. It's, and so in my quest for peace, I was, I think I, I I think I was looking to just eliminate anything that was ambiguous or unsaid because I was living a life of unsaid. The not enough probably happened like within the first two months after the first time I was molested. I didn't really know. I didn't yet know exactly how babies were made. And I was certain that because a man touched me, 
I was going to be pregnant because that's what happens when men and when females and males are together intimately. And so I was certain I was pregnant and although I never had a period yet, but that's what happens when you don't have that yet the health sciences or the talk, like my parents never had the talk with me. So it was about two months in when I thought everybody else is still the same and I'm different. Oh, and I'm going to have a baby. And when I started to see those differences or what I imagined to be the differences, I have no idea what was happening to anybody, right? At any time. But when I started to see those differences, I started to sort of pull away from the me I knew, right? And who had been consistently showing up. And when I started to play with the, you know, like I'm going to hide a pregnancy, I wasn't pregnant, but I'm going to hide a pregnancy or I'm going to overnight camp at the end of the summer, during the summer, I'm going to have to escape. Everybody else is going to be having a great time and riding horses and playing archery. And when I started to compare myself to other people, that's when the not enoughness set in. And I compared myself not on she's prettier or he's smarter. It was, I am fucked up and everybody else is normal. Pretty quickly, I decided I have to be bigger than life in a way. I have to be Teflon. I have to be, I have to be perfect. Yeah. Wow. That, that just really hit me. And I knew that I wasn't, I knew that I wasn't perfect, let alone all the filth and whatever else. I knew that I wasn't perfect enough for my family. My parents had signs around the house about like he who indulges bulges. And I was a ample, chonky, adorable kid. And they were always dieting and and limiting food like cookies and things were for my brother who was always thin and not for my sister and I who were uh, Zoftig. <laughs> so that was so big that this thing about weight that regardless of being of experiencing sexual abuse, I would have decided I wasn't enough because I wasn't skinny. But I decided that in order to be lovable, I needed to be perfect. And I was going to perfect my personality. I was going to perfect, and that came on pretty quickly. That came on even probably in my 10th year. I'm going to show up and be perfect so that I can be perfectly loved. And along the way, that certainly got me into trouble because I, just like any kid, I was not perfect. I didn't do my homework. I actually was not like a gunner for perfection in school. I was perfectly well-spoken. I was perfectly interesting and I was perfectly interested and I was perfectly fucking hilarious. And 
I could perfectly laser focus on bullshit and call it out. Now, I know today that that's called hypervigilance. <laughs> and I was always on high alert for threats. And bullshit is a threat for me. So in developing this perfection around these various areas of life, also there are many areas of life where I was working really hard to be imperfect, not knowing at that time that I was actually asking for help. So like school, there were things that I just sabotaged and fucked up, not because I didn't understand, not because I wasn't capable, not because I wasn't smart, but because like, I just don't care and don't really want to do this thing. Oh, and if I mess it up, someone will pay attention to me. Karen shared with me that it was only as an adult in the corporate world where she really was confronted with her supposed too muchness. So the awareness of being too much mostly hit me when I was in the corporate world and then in the nonprofit world. This was the recurring theme of me in a professional, every professional setting I have ever been in. It is, we, Karen, we love you. We love you. You are so awesome. We hired you for what you bring to the table, who you are, how you be. Now stop being all that and start being us. And we're going to undo all of what we say we love about you because it doesn't really fit. But somehow we want you to bring your creativity, your intrigue, your curiosity, your irreverence, and we want you to bring it, but we want you, we want you to bring it in the way that fits into our little boxes. And that is just fucking messy. Like, what does that even mean? So it played out in my professional life. I, I went from job to job, but not company to company within any company. I kept getting moved around. Like, here's a new thing. Oh, that's great. That fits Karen. Or we're going to start that thing. Or we've got this, this huge event that is a big cluster fuck of details. I am so not detail oriented, not in the least. Let's put Karen in charge of that, like visionary kinds of things. So there was a lot of chaos in my professional world. Here I am, someone who is always seeking peace. Didn't know that at the time, though. But it was like, great, I get to look at that shiny object and I get to play with that thing for a little while, hoping that it fit. But again, I would get the same feedback, which is, you're so amazing. You're, you know all of the uh, all of the great things and yet we can't squeeze you into this little box so i i didn't have the words that i was too much until i was t i was actually told by a manager you're just too much at that event when you were talking to all those people all those high level donors 
you were stepping out above, essentially above your pay grade. Now, these were people I had grown up with and known all my life. But the message I was getting is you're too much. You can't talk to those people. You're too, you're acting too confident. You're too, you're creating too much connection and relationship. Stop being you. When you're an executive vice president, you can talk to donors of a million dollars or more. Like, what the fuck, man? I'm just being me. Yeah. And it wasn't until I would actually, when I think about it, Mandy, it was probably about five years ago when it really hit home for me. So mid fifties or early-ish mid fifties, that it really hit home for me that what looked like confidence and what felt right to me and felt I felt confident doing it was me really over-indexing on, I don't want you to see what's in here. I don't want you to see this rage. I don't want you to see this anger. I don't want you to see this little 10-year-old who is a warrior. Because if we unleash who I truly am, I don't, I, the world might implode. I don't know. I don't know. So it wasn't until I went into some deep trauma therapy that I realized that I was all of that was coming from a place of, of brokenness and internal dialogue of not being enough. Like all the filth and all of that kind of loops that kept going around certainly were like loud voices that were telling me I wasn't enough. But I didn't realize that, the, that I had a story of being unlovable. I asked Sarah Madigan to put her clinical psychologist hat on and tell us a little bit about where those not enough beliefs, those thoughts of unlovability, where those might come from. It starts with a thought. It starts with one thought of, oh, I'm getting something wrong here, or I'm not lovable right now. And then that gets reinforced and that becomes really hardwired. In the brain, it can be that simple. We just, it starts with a thought and it gets reinforced again and again and again and again. And then that becomes part of our identity. Okay, that becomes part of how we view ourselves and then that impacts how we show up in the world. So there are roots to these thoughts as we've heard from both Sarah and Karen. And these thoughts get reinforced by comments like those from Karen's manager. You are just too much. What I learned in these conversations with both Sarah and Karen is that there is a way of being curious and self-compassionate about that label of too muchness. I know from conversations offline with both of them that there was a lot of image management going on, a lot of compressing, holding back, trying to fit oneself into a box to be more palatable and acceptable for other people. But ultimately, that isn't living authentically. So how did these women learn to relate to themselves 
and to their belief of too muchness in a way that felt more aligned and authentic. Well, Karen went to trauma therapy in her 50s, and here's what emerged for her. What I came out with was the big me that I had created, the big me personality, was my essentially my own safety zone. If I show up big, if I show up competent, if I show up funny as hell, if I show up whatever, like available, ready, then that's that's what you're going to believe about me. And I realized that, one, I had perfected that game and it was boring. Two, the absolute radiant, stunning human that I am is softness and peace. Gosh, I'm getting all weepy here. And surrender and love. And that game didn't serve me anymore. And as I think about that, and I think about, you know, in a professional setting when I was told fit over here, I've lost some of my rage about that and thought maybe, just maybe all of that was an invitation for me to be who I truly am. And maybe I don't have to be so fucking pissed about it. I asked Dr. Sarah to share how she started to free herself from her concerns around too muchness. I urge you to think about your strengths, right? And positive psychology, you know, talks about this a lot, thinking about what are your positive traits? Law of attraction, think about them, focus on them. When I started thinking, what if I allow my enthusiasm and actually focus on that as a gift of something special, like life really, really changed for me for the better, right? And it gives other people permission to do that as well. From a psychological perspective, I mean, behave like, it needs to be behavioral. You need to take action. So you're listening to this podcast, you go, it might, you know, you might kind of challenge some thoughts or start telling some new stories, but what you need to do is take some flipping action. Okay. When you have to take risks and you have to, it's like graded exposure. It's like exposing yourself to the fear of being yourself and then learning that you're okay. And then being able to do it again and again and again. Okay. So it's literally exposing yourself to the fear of judgment of others when you're your authentic self and then, you know, and then doing it again and again. I remember Mandy, I, uh, I dance, I teach a barefoot dance class and I took part in a um, flash mob in, on the high street in my uh, town. It's got a small town, Burnt Island in Scotland. And honestly, it's so interesting for me now to look back to then, but like you say, there'll be some of your listeners who were where I was then, right? And I felt really self-conscious to, well, to do the flash mob in the first place, to dance in the middle of the street, but then to post it on my Facebook profile, right? Where all my like guy friends from school would see it and like take the piss, <laughs> right? That was where I was. Like I, now I am so unconcerned with what my 
friends from high school think of me, but a, a few years ago, I wasn't. I was paralyzed by this fear of judgment of others, but I did it anyway. So you, you feel a fear and you do it anyway. And I posted this video and nobody, you know, nobody cares. Like nobody cared. I mean, yeah, one of my good guy friends, you know, they're like, oh, Sarah, you flipping hippie, you know, when they see me in the pub, but they love me how I am. And it's okay even if they don't, right? My enthusiasm and um, too muchness does trigger some people and that's perfect, right? How does it serve their higher self when they feel triggered by my too muchness? It's brilliant, right? But I did it and the world didn't fall apart. A few people commented and then life went on and I thought, oh, I was so fearful of of being of, of showing this too muchness to the world and nothing bad happened and so and then it is it's like the gradual graded exposure and now mandy like i will wear like neon leggings with a low cut top on and a wig feeling so sexy lip syncing and i share that and i'm so not attached to what people i'm just having a good time i'm not attached to judgments right i would urge you make it real don't keep it like a story in your head do things differently show up differently tolerate it feeling uncomfortable learn that nobody cares really right and everyone's so focused on their own lives and people want to relate to the real you and if the real you wants to be more visible wants to be more seen it's such a gift for other people to get to connect to that truer version of you right So Sarah suggested dealing with FOPO. You know FOPO? Fear of people's opinions. By doing what she calls graded exposure. So putting yourself out there as you are. And yes, not everyone will like it. But Sarah says you start to realize a couple of things. First, no one's really that bothered because they're not paying attention to you. And second, that you can actually withstand not being universally liked and approved of. It's like a muscle. What Karen realized in her trauma therapy was that she could let her soft, loving, vulnerable side be there and lay down that armor of being larger than life that felt like it was protecting her. She was creating her own safety. She didn't need to be that big, brash, overconfident person who was overcompensating. So speaking of that big, brash persona that she was wearing when I met her, Karen told me this. The me that you met seven years ago, the me that you met seven years ago is certainly, right? I'm I'm that person and I am so much more. That person was playing with self-reflection and was on the brink of the deep dive. The so much more of me is because of the deep dive. What I love about this is Karen's owning all the parts of herself, from the big, loud, hilarious parts to the soft, tender, vulnerable parts. It's such a joy witnessing her stepping into a feeling of wholeness. We get this idea that we, if we do these things, we will be whole. Not knowing that all of this has been whole all the time. All of it, the icky, the the beautiful, all of it. We have been whole all the time. Yeah. Wholeness, I don't know. I thought I thought that was for somebody else who knew how to breathe better than I did because they were, I don't know, I had this thing about personal growth. Everybody knew how to breathe 
take deep breaths better than I did. I couldn't do that because I wasn't yet whole. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a destination. Exactly. Yeah, Whereas exactly. You just read this book and do this 10 step program. And then yeah. all of a sudden you will be granted access to the wholeness club. To the exactly. <laughs> yes. I ask Sarah what else she practices to tread that tricky line of being really authentic and not making herself small out of fear of too muchness. I focus on the people that love me. Mm. Like Bandy, I am, you know, well, one, I practice a lot of self-compassion. I mean, my, my, my self-talk, you know, I mean, you know, um, self-compassion has become a huge thing in psychology, you know, gratitude and self-compassion, but but I really, really practice that. You know, someone who, I mean, I used to have debilitating anxiety and social anxiety. So I have to really support myself with my self-talk. So that looks like, for your listeners, that looks like in social situations, me telling myself, Sarah, there is nothing you can do right now that is gonna make me reject you. Just flip and try, try and make me reject you. You won't make me reject you. So my relationship between me and me is something that I have worked on daily for years. So it's not without, it's not like you say, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm really enjoying sort of interrogating it and picking it apart because it isn't just the, the graded exposure. It isn't just taking the action. It's actually really developing this deeply loving and compassionate relationship with yourself right? Being the person that gives you the approval. So, you know, I, like I say, I will support myself at times with that really deep, compassionate self-talk, but also Monday, like law of attraction, I'm going to focus on the people that love me, like on my best friend, on my, you know, my husband, I'm going to focus on the people that love me unconditionally. I'm not going to focus on people that it, it doesn't matter, right? You know, I remember it was quite freeing actually. I remember um, one of my um, mentors, when I started building the business and offering my services, that was challenging, you know, being vulnerable, asking for large amounts of money felt challenging, you know, and I was at first very focused on the people that it's gonna trigger. Some people are gonna think, who does she think she is? Too big for her boots, too much. Who does she think she is charging thousands of pounds? You know, I was so focused on the few people that I thought would criticize me. And then I said to my mentor, oh, I feel so nervous about, you know, pitching my programs. You know, I'm just worried that this person's going to, you know, I'm just worried that they're going to think she's a dickhead, right? And my, and my mentor said the most freeing thing. She said, Sarah, some people are going to think you're a dickhead. And she said it with that energy. And I love this mentor. And it was the most freeing thing, Mandy. Because in that moment, honestly, in that moment, it was, and that was like a moment of thinking, God, it's true. Some people are always going to judge you. Some people are going to judge me if I charge 50 quid though, because that's too much to some people. So I might as well charge what feels in alignment for me. But people will think you're a dickhead. People will judge you. But guess what? It's not even about you. It's about them. So it's it's like also for me, it's like having that healthy boundary, you know, and I teach about boundaries, but it really is like my my identity, like I end here and somebody else begins here. I am not my thoughts, let alone somebody else's thoughts 
I am not somebody else's judgments of me. I always close out the show with a brick of wisdom that our guests want to leave with you. So let's start with Karen. If you can relate to any of this, if your listeners can relate to any of this, and you may be feeling like you've got it all, you've got you've got the salary, you've got the promotion, you've got the cars, the house, the relationships, and you've got a secret. And if you're not aware that it holds you back, I'm here to tell you it does. If you are aware that it holds you back, perhaps you can relate to my journey, which happened in a conversation in which I was talking to somebody else about their priorities. And I asked, what, what is your number one priority? And she turned to me and said, well, what's your number one priority? And it came out of me like word vomit. And it was to uncouple myself from my childhood sexual abuser. Now, I didn't know that that was like, and I'm going to like jump into deep ass therapy. <laughs> it was, I thought, oh, there's going to be somewhere. I'm going to find 10 simple steps, how to uncouple yourself from your childhood sexual abuser. But that thing didn't exist. So I went on a little journey. I went out, I, I actually did some research and I was like, okay, I am exhausted. I live, I lead a double life. I am a grown ass woman who has a magnificent relationship, but I have this fucking thing that's still there. I have a man in, uh, I'm married to a man at that point. It was like going on, going on 30 years. I don't know. I don't remember how many years ago I started this who who wants to give me all of his, all he does is want to love me and I cannot wholly love him back because I, he knew, he knew about what happened to me, but I wasn't, I didn't feel whole. I was exhausted. I was bored. I felt like a liar. I was okay feeling like an imposter, but I felt like a liar. And I had this heavy backpack of bones and emotions of my dead childhood sexual abuser that I was carrying everywhere. So in my research project, <laughs> how can, how can I reconcile this? How can I dump this? I looked up like childhood sexual abuse. I looked up all sorts of things. Like I'm exhausted. What is making me all sorts of things. And I started making calls and setting appointments. And then I started canceling those appointments. You know, they would call me and say, well, okay. So the therapist, a therapist office would call and say, okay, we want to make sure we can match you to the right person. Can you give us a little bit of background? And I'd be like, oops, just realized I have something else. I have to go. Because what that would mean is I'm going to open these boxes. Holy shit. I don't know what's going to happen if I do. The roof might blow off my house. I don't know. And I got, to, I got to a point, I actually talked to one, she wasn't the office manager, whatever she was, the, let's call her a dispatcher. <laughs> and she had such beautiful questions to ask me. And I felt her compassion and I did not feel judged. And that for me was, I felt very safe. She had a safe way of asking. I didn't realize how much safety was really important to me. 
And so I started interviewing within this office. And every time I told my story, I one, I told it in a space that felt very safe. Every time I told my story, I felt a little bit more free. Every time. I was so good at, right, at speaking truth into the world, just as you said at the onset of this, right? But speaking my truth, my truth, those other things may have been my truths. And they were throughout my life. But my, like, truthy truth truth, that was the beginning of everything and also the end of so much. And I wanted to do it more and more. And I, as I, and I, I think it was my fourth conversation where I landed on the right person. And by then it wasn't, it wasn't like I was practiced or rehearsed or expecting anything. All I was doing was showing up. And as I imagined myself sitting in these various chairs, by the time I got to the fourth chair of why are we here? I imagine myself wearing like some sort of garment from the biblical ages that's like tattered and like a linen cloth that's just a mess and being slumped into the most comfortable chair one could ever find. I might be barefoot too and with really hairy legs, but just so unkept. And that felt so good to me. So with, at that point, I was in, I was like, there, hold on, this is what freedom feels like. And if there is one thing that I can leave with anyone who's even feeling the slightest, like, oh, wait, shit, that might be me, or that is me, the pushing down of who you truly are is living a half-life. It, it creates the result of a life half-lived. The expression, the beauty is, is all buried within that holdback. And what happens on the other side is to be truly free. Now, it might not be easy. It's not. And it's not seamless. But I can promise you that you will not break. You will not be in a million pieces. And not only will those around you get to experience all of you, because they never have before. Not only will they get to experience all of you, you get to experience all of you. And that is everything. Mm, so, so good. And here's what Dr. Sarah wants to leave you with. So my brick of wisdom is, you know, as a mother who has lost a child, Finley was eight months old when he died. I know in every cell of my body how precious and fleeting this life is. I know in every cell of my body 
that I am lucky to have a healthy body that functions and that supports life. Finley didn't have that, right? And love and joy are the things that matter. We don't have to prove our enoughness. None of that matters. Like when we're at the end of our lives, like when you're at the end of your life, you're not gonna care about the, the, the ways that you tie yourself up right now in terms of feeling enough or not enough. You're gonna be connected to the love you experienced. Some of my key takeaways are delving into your secrets with support. That can be liberating. So Karen's words, you will not break, are so reassuring. So if any of what Karen said resonated with you, please do seek professional help on that. It can be a game changer. I also love the idea from the episode of gradual exposure from Dr. Sarah, putting yourself out there and building emotional capacity to be able to hold others' judgments or not liking you. And as ever, self-compassion. Always, the more you accept yourself, the less you need it from others. Karen and Sarah's details will be on my website in the show notes, so have a look there if you want more of either or both of them. And I hope you've taken something away from this conversation. If you haven't already followed the show, please go ahead and do that before you leave Spotify or Apple. It means that you never miss an episode and it also helps the show to grow. So thank you so much in advance for doing that if you haven't already. Thank you for listening. We're going to do this all again in two weeks.